This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, automotive journalist Jeremy Cato will join us to talk about safe cars, e-cars, used cars, perhaps the future of cars, and take your calls and questions, too. But first, here are some more of the top consumer stories we're following this week, and we begin this round with a car story. Ratings agency Moody's is lowering its forecast for global car sales because of the coronavirus outbreak. It now reckons sales will decline to and a half percent this year instead of only 0.9 percent so that's more than double what the original forecast was and this follows a decline last year of four and a half percent ap reporting this week moody said the outbreak would reduce demand and disrupt supplies of parts and raw materials for the auto industry it also said sales in china the world's biggest car market would fall as people avoid crowded areas including of course car dealerships moody's added that if the rate of infection doesn't abate and the death toll continues to rise there's potential for more severe disruptions in manufacturing supply chains, including the automotive sector. New limits on carbon dioxide emissions in Europe will also weigh on the auto industry there. So here's the dilemma for automakers who must invest heavily in new electric vehicles that have zero emissions even as profits from sales of conventional cars decline. So how might this affect presses, prices rather here for the rest of the year? Well, you're just thinking about a new car. This is not what you want to hear. We'll ask Jeremy Cato in just a few minutes. For example, he's, uh, he's already leaning in the direction of maybe we've hit peak car. So what next? Oh, and a new driver's survey this week confirms what many of us already know to be true. Distracted driving is an even greater threat than impaired driving in car-related deaths. According to rates.ca, 40% of us agree with that premise. More than half of the survey respondents rather, aged 18 to 34 have told the driver to stop using their phone and more than three times. As for what kind of distracted driving we believe contributes to crashes, texting came out on top, followed by making a hands-free call eating, drinking coffee, and using a GPS. Many Canadian drivers also feel stricter measures work to help discourage impaired driving. The majority of people surveyed, 67% say they believe even stiffer penalties should be brought in for younger novice drivers. Meanwhile, almost all Canadians, that would be 95% of us, believe the dangers of distracted driving should be taught in school. Oh, we also learned this week the fine in BC for distracted driving is now at $368 plus penalty points of $252, which equals a first time tab of $620, or what could be a nice weekend in Whistler, as local police forces ramp up their distracted driver teams. Don't say you haven't been warned. Another recall to tell you about this weekend, too, but this time it's a kid's toy. American toy brand Step 2 is recalling its plastic shopping carts due to parts that could break off and cause injury. In a joint announcement this week, Health Canada said Step 2's recall affects three different models from its Little Helpers shopping cart line. The recall, recall rather, comes after U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission received over 20 reports of the carts breaking due to brittle material. Now, here in Canada, their vice president of marketing did say there were no injuries and none of the reports of broken carts 
are in Canada. The affected products were sold last year between May and October 2019, according to Health Canada. Almost 3,500 units sold here, 17,000 in the States. Consumers are being asked to dispose of the carts, and you can request a replacement by contacting the manufacturer, Step Those are just a few more of the week's top consumer stories. We'll have some more later in the hour for you, too. But coming right up, we check in with automotive journalist Jeremy Cato, the car guy. Back to take your calls and talk safe cars, expensive foreign cars, e-cars. You know it. You get the idea. Lines are open. 604-280-9898. Might as well get right to the chase. 604-280-9898. Jeremy Cato, next on Vancouver Consumer. Welcome back to the program. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon, last day of February 2020, leap year. I'm Sterling Fox. A pleasure to welcome back Jeremy Cato to the program. CatoCarGuy.com is Jeremy's website. For 25 years, our guest was the car columnist with the Globe and Mail, and a much-traveled individual he is. We caught up to him at home in North Vancouver this weekend. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome back. Well, hi, Sterling. It's a good thing I didn't go to Geneva this year because they canceled the auto show. I saw that in the paper just yeah. yesterday. This is all part of the coronavirus uh, fallout, and uh, yeah. absolutely, that's one of the biggest car shows in the world, isn't it? You're uh, not just big. Yes, it is one of the biggest, but it's also one of the quirkiest and most interesting because you uh, that show has traditionally been littered with sort of one-off manufacturers who, who sell a couple of hundred specialty vehicles that have been uh, modified from something else, a bunch of parts. And so you, you get an interesting collection of that show of not just the mainstream manufacturers, but sort of Russian entrepreneurs and Italian designers and crazy Englishmen who try to sell you wooden cars. <laughs> right. it's, it's a really fun auto show. And it's a big blow to the auto industry because it's, it's the big spring show kind of launches everybody into the spring buying season so it, it's a big loss for the industry and the industry doesn't need any more of these sets. absolutely and I, I wanted you to comment and i said you probably would like to on this story i did moments ago about moody's down basically downgrading the automotive industry for 2020 jeremy on the basis of the coronavirus and other factors of course last year they were sales were down four and a half percent it was still the fourth best year they've ever had but nonetheless it's a trend that's going the wrong way from the manufacturing point of view. And the point I tried to make in the story was, here are these car companies rolling over into the electric vehicle mode of production, but all of that is supposed to be bankrolled by the profits derived from selling conventional gas-powered vehicles. And if sales are tapering off there, the investment capital isn't as available. So they're actually, in some cases, having to borrow to get uh, the e-car stuff done, aren't they? Oh, borrow tons. Uh, you know, I, I've just started work on a, a column that I'll, I'll publish in the next uh, probably week or so uh, about the end of wi- uh, predicting which car companies are going to survive and which ones are going to fail. Okay. Um, and, and you've just hit on the nail on the head. The, the capital uh, required to, to go into artificial intelligence, connectivity, uh, battery electric, uh, plug-in hybrid, all that stuff is massive just just to, i'll give you one number for a traditional development like let's say you're reinventing updating the toyota corolla very mainstream car sure sixteen thousand dollars to start that investment from a car company to develop and bring that vehicle to market new engineering new styling is about a billion dollars that's just a mainstream four-cylinder commuter car yeah so when you start looking at the electrification connectivity artificial intelligence 
you're talking multiples of that. And I know, you know, for example, Volkswagen has pledged to spend $25 billion on electrified vehicles by the middle of this decade. That's right. That's, I mean, these numbers are just staggering. And if, if there's even a, a slight downturn in sales and profitability, which is you, you can have strong sales and no or very little profitability, um, it, it impacts on the on the on the uh, future of these kinds of changes. And the other piece I just throw in there, the biggest car market in the world by far is China. Yes. Guess what's happening in China? Yeah, mentioned that in the story yeah. too, Jeremy. Yeah, the largest yeah. car. Yeah. I mean, people aren't even going to dealerships to look anymore. No, and and uh, you know, again, the Chinese economy is is fairly fragile, and it's been absolutely. You know, hammered by the coronavirus issues, you know, and and it's not going to come out of that right away because supply chains. Well, the auto industry is built on like every other industry, but especially the auto industry because it's so capital intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, just in time delivery, so any interruption of the supply chain creates problems just to just to manufacture. Most most car plants have maybe a a day, sometimes just a few hours worth of parts actually on site. So if planes aren't flying, if ships aren't sailing, if trains aren't rolling, products aren't being created. Interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, so it's, there's lots of things going on in the industry. And, and you know, there are futurists out there, guys like Tony Siva. I don't know if you've read any of his, his stuff, but he's predicting by the middle of this decade that we will be in a steep decline of, of the ownership, the actual ownership of personal transportation right he started he started making that prediction most of which has come true including the the explosion of tesla he wrote that the the book on this in 2014 so he's not he's seen ahead quite a long way so if if you're making a five-year out prediction he's a guy to look at interesting okay how do you spell his last name jeremy s-e-b-a okay i wanted to ask you about the, this uh, this new uh the annual consumer reports uh safety uh survey uh they go out and buy 50 new cars and they put them through every hoop imaginable uh, and but here's here's the premise that this year's survey of safest cars is based on let me just quote for a quick second quote to be a consumer reports top pick each car is required to have forward collision warning and automatic emergency braking with pedestrian detection as standard equipment. We believe these safety features are so important, they should be standard on every new car on the road. How far are we away from that consumer report person uh, having that wish granted? Were those features that they deem to be, uh, if the car doesn't have them, we're not going to test them for safety because it's not safe enough. How soon will all of those features be standard? Well, you know, across the industry, almost everybody's there pretty close right now. That's so. Um, and, and, you know, put, you know, I mentioned the Toyota Corolla. Well, the Corolla is Consumer Reports' number one small car. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is, you know, these are cars under $25,000. A Corolla, I think, starts around fifteen and a half, sixteen thousand in Canada. Um, you know, it's a, and it has all these advanced safety technologies. And in, in Canada, I think Toyota calls it the safety shield. Right. And these things have been in in a basically in um, all mainstream Toyota and Lexus products in uh, in Canada for several years now. So um, you know, Subaru Force, they're very affordable yep. by our standards today. Compact SUV, small SUV. 
It's got all those things, right? And you combine those electronic safety features, those interventions, the computer-driven stuff, with the robustness of how cars are built today. In other words, look at the crash test scores. Um, driving driving into a fixed barrier at you know at a high speed, you're most likely going to walk away from anything but the most catastrophic car crash, relatively unscathed. Mm-hmm. The airbags, the uh, emergency braking systems, the forward collision mitigation, and all those sorts of uh, things. The last piece I just want to throw out there, Sterling. Interesting that uh, Consumer Reports singled out pedestrian um, protection. Yes. Think about our cities now. They're so crowded with bicycles and pedestrians and and those sorts of things um, that it's now up to the automakers to provide safety features that um, make those cars safer within the city, not just for the driver of the car, but for the people around them. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I wanted let me just go through the list very quickly because you mentioned a couple of the winners of the uh-huh. the, the Subaru Forester top in this small SUV category, as you just said. Uh, in the midsize SUV, the Kia Telluride, that's their new one, uh, won the uh, safest vehicle in that category. The Corolla was the the uh, the best um, small car. The Lexus RX, the best midsize SUV. The Subaru Legacy, best midsize sedan. Another one for Toyota, the Avalon. Got uh, best large sedan, best pickup truck, Honda Ridgeline. That was a bit of a surprise. Toyota Supra, best sports car. Lots of kudos for the Prius. And on the E category, Tesla Model 3 wins running away. It's sort of like a Toyota sales brochure, isn't it? <laughs> well, they've, they've done rather well. Uh, built up uh, quite quite a record over the years. Uh, fewer Hondas than I would have expected in this year, but uh, mostly uh, mostly foreign uh, entries uh, at the top of each category. Well, you know, Honda's one of those manufacturers, a relatively small global car maker, um, you know, a few million units a year, which sounds big, but it's really not, because Toyota's selling 10 million vehicles a year. Um, that is struggling now to balance the need to remain competitive in current sort of internal combustion vehicles and also invest in in, uh, battery and electrified technologies going forward. Honda's way behind uh, many of its competitors in this. So uh, so you can see where automakers are trying to cut corners. Um, You mentioned there's not a lot of Hondas on this list. Maybe five, eight years ago there would have been. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it is my understanding from the research I've done that, you know, one of the challenges Honda faces because it's not a big automaker is finding enough res- enough resources to carry on with these new technologies. And what happens to the small automakers that can't do that? Well, Mazda and Subaru both have very deep relationships with, you guessed it, Toyota. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so, so that's how you share the cash. I mean, Toyota has Toyota is the richest car company in the world by far. Okay, it makes more money than you can even. I mean, my God, it it, it is such a well run, well organized company. And so some of the smaller Japanese manufacturers are now in deeper and deeper relationships. And Mazda and Subaru are the two classic examples of that. Interesting. By the way, a bit of a, 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 a benchmark, a noteworthy event this week. Uh, 8.30 this past Thursday morning, the last of the 10th and final generation of the Chevrolet Impala rolled <laughs> off the assembly line in Detroit. It entered the, the game in 1958. It got kicked out twice, uh, once in the 80s, and then again between 96 and 2000, brought it back for a bunch more, and it said, nah, it's done. No more Chevrolet Impalas. And if you're of a certain vintage, Jeremy, as you and I are, yeah. 
That, that's, yeah, those are one of the old land yachts that we used to all drive around in as kids. Absolutely. Uh, sort of ended its life as a very popular police car and yes. taxi cab. Uh, and, you know, the other piece that's a little bit sad about that that I would just I would just make note of is that that was a vehicle that for many, many years was man- manufactured in Oshawa, Ontario. And now the General Motors has completely eliminated all auto manufacturing in Canada. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the demise of the Impala is, you know, uh, is, it coincides with the demise of General Motors uh, manufacturing capabilities in Canada. So, you know the industry changes fast, and that's a pretty good example of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were talking about you were talking about the kinds of changes that the the industry is evolving into, and this very plant, the Hamtrak uh, plant in Detroit, is going to go down for retooling for about a year and a half. Jeremy, Jeremy, as at the end of that time, it's going to produce the new Hummer pickup truck. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> and there's another yeah. e car, and they've got two or three more electronic vehicles on the on the to-do list so they're, they're going to convert this Chevrolet Impala plant to uh, an electronic electric vehicle plant within two years well Hamtramck was where uh, the original Chevy Bolt was built okay um, you, you might recall that w- which arrived in the marketplace just about the time the old General Motors was going bankrupt um, and that was kind of the flagship for for uh, General Motors um, and that was essentially a plug-in hybrid. Now, General Motors has said it's not going to do any hybrids or plug-ins any, uh, or plug-in hybrids. It's going to go strictly with electrified, purely electrified vehicles. Um, but there, it's sort of like uh, there's no point in just smoking, uh, you know, light cigarettes. You just you need to go to full quitting smoking. Well, maybe my analogy isn't working here, but, <laughs> but the whole point here is that there's no point in having a hybrid. That's General Motors' position. Right. Hybrids are, you know, that that's an interim technology that doesn't make any sense. Why would you sell a car that has two powertrains in order to cut emissions and reduce uh, waste on uh, in in the in the whole product development chain? So, um, General Motors is going that way, and General Motors is doing a lot of interesting and. We'll have to see if it works out because GM is one of those global car companies that's conserving cash. I referred to that before. Yeah. Well, GM's pulling out of all kinds of markets. It's closed down its entire operation in uh, in uh, Australia. The old Holden brand. That's right. There, they canceled that this week too, yeah. didn't they? GM has pulled out of Russia entirely. It's pulled out of India entirely. It's uh, it's slim. It sold its entire European division to uh, PSA Peugeot. Uh, so GM is basically going to be a China a North American. Uh, automaker and, and you know GM has canceled all its production in in Canada, um, so GM is is betting that the really the only two car markets for a mainstream manufacturer like it that make any sense would be China and the, and the United States and, and you know Canada is part of that North American uh, North American piece. So you, you're, you're going to see such a shakeout in the auto industry in the next five years. Some brands that we're used to, you know, we we've come accustomed to Pontiac and so on disappeared. Oh, God, yeah. and, um, there'll be more. There right. will be more blood on the floor by the by the middle to the end of the step. The self-driving cruise origin EV is the next one after the Hummer electric pickup at that plant that <laughs> used to produce Chevy Impalas. Jeremy Cato on the line. We're talking cars and looking for calls. If you want to jump in on the conversation, lines are open. It's 604-280-9898. Lots more still ahead after the news.
And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on a sunny Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, joined by automotive journalist Jeremy Cato. CatoCarGuy.com is Jeremy's website. And if you pop over for a visit, you'll find that you can download a free ebook called Swimming with the Showroom Sharks. And it's an insider's guide on how to save five grand or more on your next new vehicle. A freebie from our guy, Jeremy the car guy. Jeremy, you were talking about, and I alluded to this in the opening remarks, you were talking about peak car. Have we hit peak car with with uh, the, the, the turnaround in the automotive industry and everything going electric and battery and all the rest of it? It would seem to be almost a time for a renaissance of car, and yet you're at a point in your covering of the industry and our consumption of it where you say we may have just hit a threshold that there, beyond which there is no room. Uh, I think that it's almost a country-by-country country issue. Uh, in countries that are that can't afford the, the the richest of technologies, the full artificial intelligence, um, you know, connected uh, electrification of the automobile approach, um, they're going to stick with the old internal combustion engine until there's until they absolutely have to because these are expensive technologies, even though the price is going down. Right. But in developed countries and wealthier countries, I think we definitely have, especially with the movement of uh, so many, uh, in, in, in most countries now, there's been a massive migration into mega cities or very, very large cities. And it, you just don't need a car in, in, a, in, in a mega city. You'd rather be in a situation where you have a subscription or you have a sharing or as, as uh, some of these uh, um, uh, services like Uber and Lyft right. now roll out more and more, uh, the opportunities when you the, the 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 need you might have for an everyday car are diminished dramatically, and as these mega cities ramp up, there's going to be no room for cars right. uh, on the on the streets. The other thing that I think you can make an argument for, uh, if if people aren't living in suburbs or with long commute personal driving distances, why do you need it? I mean, the the last study I looked at, um, uh, you look noted that about 96% of the time you own a car, it sits parked. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not a good use of capital, right? And and so a lot of the futurists that that I've interviewed and and looked at are arguing that this is a terrible use of capital. The average car automobile purchase in Canada is about $34,000 now. Right. I mean, let's just say you used a combination of transit, subscription, and, and car borrowing or car leasing, like a car-to-go kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, Moto, or whatever. Columbia, you know, Echo, Auto, that's that sort of thing. Sure. Evo, Evo um, yeah. Well, let's say you can cut your transportation costs down to $5,000 a year, right? Total, or even less. What, what, what is a transit pass in, in Vancouver cost for a student? It's what, 25 bucks or something? Well, it's, or? I think it's a, it can run you as high as 100, about 120 a month, I think, is about okay, that, that's, that's a, a threshold. Okay, that's a full time person. But, you know, yeah. you know as, as ours. But even, know, even I, there, Jeremy, it's 1400 bucks a year. Yeah, and that's it. No insurance costs. I mean, I, no I parking, no I, gas, right? Exactly. exactly. I, I, put, I wrote a piece uh, that I posted on my website yesterday, a review of, uh, of an Infinity. Um, a sports car. The raciest the, Q60 coupe is very nice and yes. expensive. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the one I tested was a, almost seventy thousand dollars as equipped. Wow! But that that's not really caught my eye. I mean, if you're going to buy one of those cars, you're going to buy one of those cars. What caught my eye was the insurance cost, and I I, I did an online search of twenty different insurers, and to buy that car uh, to to insure that car for a thirty five year old driver with done all the graduated driving uh, activities, no tickets, no history, mm-hmm. nothing bad, is two thousand dollars a year. Wow. For your basic insurance, right? So you have that car for five years. You just spent ten grand on car insurance, just car insurance for something that's essentially parked ninety six percent of the time you own it. Exactly. So the, the what a lot of the futurists are saying is that the economic case with the with more and more people migrating into larger and larger cities where owning a car makes less and less sense. Mm-hmm. We're into a place now where where sharing um, or using. Um, Self-driving cars or cars on demand, are, it's just going to make more sense for people. And the plus side of that is you need less parking spaces. Vancouver, certainly, we live in Vancouver. Vancouver has cut by more than half the number of parking spaces oh, but, but they declared war on the car about 10 years ago, and they've been very <laughs> consistent ever since, haven't they now? Yeah, and, and you know, uh, they did declare war on it, and, you, you know, the, I, I can still get a parking place when mm-hmm. I go downtown. Well, but most of the time when I go downtown, I, I live on the North Shore just by the sea bus. I don't drive downtown. I hop on the sea bus sure. and, and, and go down there. I take a bike or I'll take a, or I'll, I'll take transit when I get to the other side. So the, the point being here is you asked the question about peak car. In places where the megacities rule, this would be China, the United States, Europe, Canada, um, there's less and less need to actually own a car. That doesn't mean, you know, if you're, if you're a tradesperson and you need your van or your pickup truck or your delivery person, that's fine. But if you don't do that, if you're the typical uh, worker who goes to one place or you even telecommute from home, why would you go tie up $35,000 of capital in a car that's going to sit in the parking garage most of the week. Man, good question, and fair one, too. Uh, open the yeah. phone lines just before the news, so uh, let's include some callers as we go forward. Rod is the, uh, at the top of the list. Rod, thanks for waiting. Hello. Hey, good afternoon, guys. And by the way, if we demise the car, um, this is the most depressing open-line show you guys could ever have, because aren't we talking about the future of the cars? So how ironic. But, but I've got an interesting point. I've been attending the SEMA convention since uh, 1994. And this is a convention that's all about modifying cars, aftermarket, and it's uh, all about inspiration of cars. I think, and I look at the demographic that attends that show, there's a lot of young people that are at that show. Okay. I don't, I don't think there is a future uh, in the next two decades that does not include uh, a four-wheel vehicle. And I'm actually going to go even further than that. I think the world of an automated, uh, self-driven car is representing such a tiny, tiny part of the population that I don't see manufacturers pouring a lot of effort into it and actually making any money. People like to get behind the wheel of a car and drive. The freedom, all of that still really, really matters. I think there's still such a strong emotional connection to a car. Well, it's ingrained. And, it's ingrained into our culture in many ways, isn't it, Rod? Well, I think I think it is, and but I'm not saying it's the culture of guys like me, you know, middle aged. I think it's part of our young people as well. I've got I've got kids that are in their twenties, and when they climb into their car and they drive it and they want to modify it, they love it. And I just don't. I think the emotional connection is still too strong 
majority of the population. Yes, there's a group of people. By the way, I love a walking community. If I could spend the weekend and not climb into my car and walk around, that's a great weekend. Mm. But when I want to go somewhere, I love to drive. So I just can't see a, the the whole world of a driverless car being being the mass majority. And so that's kind of what I wanted to, 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 to talk about in the challenge. I don't think the car is going away for the next two decades. I think we're going to still love to drive. All right, Rod, well said, too. Excellent points. And uh, and I used ingrained in the culture, Jeremy, just sort of as in a way of summarizing what he was saying. Pretty emotional presentation there, though, but it's about <laughs> emotion and our emotional attachments to our vehicles in some cases. Well, Sterling, you're talking to a guy that the day I turned 16 was the day I got my driver's Me license too. And, yep. and bought my first car. So, you know, yes, I, I totally get this emotional connection to it. But I am also a parent of, uh, of a 20-something. And, uh, you know, Sam's had a, had a car um, at the end of high school and all through university because he needed it to get to his part-time job. Now he's studying down in Portland where there's a great transit system and he does, he, he lives, uh, you know, half an hour bike ride away from his school and he's saving money because mm-hmm. it's very expensive to go to grad school there. Got rid of his car. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, uh, I, and he likes cars. He's grown up with me for God's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, he's seen lots of cars in his life, but the idea here, I guess what I would throw out there is I think there is some emotional connection to it, but I, I think the research is pretty clear that a lot of the purchases for the, say, the under 35 crowd, um, and especially millennials, are driven more by need than they are by emotion. Uh, they just aren't baby boomers, and they just aren't Generation X. And so, yeah, I, I mean, how can I agree with Rod? Of course, the auto industry is not going to go away. There's a difference between car, the auto industry disappearing and peak car. Right. And remember, there's a billion, more than a billion, about 1.2 billion passenger vehicles on the road in the world today they aren't all going to just go away um but we we could be at the peak and and that the, so the car sharing self-driving cars cars that are uh, you know and i think the, the 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 industry itself is looking for ways to put people in cars in alternatives that make sense so for example here in british columbia the open road auto group yep. um big dealership group. I think they have about 25 or 26 dealerships. They've been experimenting with a lease program, which would allow you to uh, pay a certain fee every month. I think it's around twelve to $1,500. And you can drive any luxury vehicle in their fleet. Ah, okay. All right. So you have an opportunity. Right. Yeah. So if one weekend it's your big, Sterling, you're just celebrating your wedding anniversary that would be your 10th i think right you're a young guy (laughs) and you want to take your bride up to whistler and you don't want to take your suv you don't want to take your nissan rogue you want to take a sports car so if you were part of that subscription model then you could say this weekend it's a beautiful summer day i'm going to take my my uh, lovely bride up to whistler for the weekend and we're going to do it in a lovely sports car see this guy you come back the next weekend you're doing um renovations on your house you want a pickup truck right sure and so on and so forth. So I think, I think this is all going to work itself out. The ownership of a car for every person in the family, which was typical of my growing up and my son's growing up, I do think that that is, that is waning. All right. Let's uh, carry on with more calls. And we're in New Westminster to thank Eric for his patience and say good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Thanks for the program. A couple of questions, and I want to weigh in, too, on that uh, the peak car thing. Okay. Uh, if I could, just a quick comment. My best way of saying it is, I think, given our 
infrastructure, our the, um, the use of cars and fossil fuels, we will use all of that up until we're absolutely forced or the technology becomes um, available readily for everybody okay. before we go to anything else. So, you know, it's just good capitalistic, <laughs> from what I understand, capitalistic use. You build an infrastructure, you use it up until it's worn out. Absolutely. You, what was you your, don't replace it anymore. Uh, fair, fair ball. What was your question for okay. Jeremy? The, the question I have, I'm a contractor, junk removal guy. I'm towing a trailer all the time. I've got a 2015 Ram pickup truck. Terrible gas mileage around town, but it's what I need to tow my trailer. Right. Um, I mean, I'm lucky to get 20 liters per hundred. The thing's a pick. I'm looking at the, this new e e hybrid pickup truck. I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it, but maybe he knows something about that truck that uh, he could illuminate me on. Jeremy? Well, I mean, sure. Uh, you, 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 let, let's say you could buy a, a new a Ford or Lincoln Rivian pickup truck, the electrified one coming from Ford Motor Company. It was Rivian, yeah. Eric. That was the, the word you were looking for, Rivian. The Rivian. Okay. Or you could buy... Look, the, actually, at a, at a Ram. There's a Ram pickup that's got a, a oh. electric over gas. Okay. Jeremy? Yes. Well, let's see. You can get a hybrid of some kind mm-hmm. that, that would yeah, save is. you 25% reduction in your fuel cost. Would you buy it? Of course, if it's available. Um you know, yeah, I'm spending about six, seven grand a year on fuel. Right. So if you could get that down to two, I mean, it makes total sense. And and so this is the direction the industry is 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 going in the short, in the in the midterm is hybrids and plug-in hybrids. Um, the, the, but if you could get a full battery electric pickup that had a 400 kilometer range, you could recharge in 25 minutes, and your total cost of refueling annually was under a thousand dollars you can justify that purchase especially given that there's about 18 moving parts in an electric pickup versus about 2,000 in your ram mm. uh, so you've got less things that wear out you'll never change you'll never do a brake job because the electric motors will do most of the braking for you there's no transmission rebuilds i mean it's just a simple uh, one-speed transmission uh, so if your maintenance costs basically go down from whatever they are now, to zero, and your fuel costs go down to under $1,000. From six or seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from six or seven. You can go go out to the airport and ask any taxi driver driving a Toyota Prius, because there's a giant fleet of them, when was the last time they did a brake job? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just in, so if we're going to talk about the economic argument for switching to at least elect, an electrified uh, fleet, if we can get the battery costs down, and they've already gone down by about 80% in the last decade, um, by the middle of the, this coming decade, uh, in the one we're in, the 2020s, um, they will be on par or less than a typical internal combustion engine. All of a sudden, if the battery costs are not the it's not $10,000 to replace your battery, but it's two, then all of it, all of this makes sense. Jeremy, and then you're. Yeah, sorry, I'm carrying on. No, no, it's okay. I want to get I want to get Ron in, uh, and we've yeah, got sorry. we're just fresh out of time almost. Ron, if you can be quick, please go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to um, mention Jeremy was talking about the Vancouver's uh, war on parking. Yeah. I drive a full size van, just an ordinary van. The problem is I cannot park in the majority of underground parkades, which leaves me trying to find street parking. A lot of times, our customers are just playing of the luck because I cannot park close enough to their building to service them. And I think the city of Vancouver and other cities, they need to get on the ball. You want to reduce cars, that's fine. 
you have to start making parking available for tradespeople so we can service all of the high-rises that are now not having any parking. Interesting point, and well put, too, Ron. Any any thoughts on that, Jeremy? Uh, I I cannot agree with with, uh, Ron Moore. Um, you know, it's it's all well and good to get people out of their personal cars for commuting and stuff, but we still need to move goods and services and, and maintenance um, uh, uh, operators around the city. And so, planning for that. So, I don't. What was the last? Were you? Have you been in New York City recently? With all the, I mean, you go to New York City. There's no place to park cars there, and then there are car. There are trucks just park on the street. That's right. Double yeah. and triple park. Oh yeah. It's it's total gridlock almost all the time. Um, so, good city planning has specific loading zones within reach of of these uh, of of these new uh, you know high rises and so on. The other thing, along those lines, though, um, that I would really encourage city planners to think more clearly about is creating uh, charging stations within the new structures. I don't think we're building uh, buildings with enough of them. And how? And what about retrofitting older buildings? That yeah, is, good point. You know, my I I uh, you know. I live on in, uh, in North Vancouver, on the, bound by the water. Now, all the older buildings, none of them have any kind of charging infrastructure whatsoever. Well, their time is coming, Jeremy. I'm afraid I, I, my time is up, old boy, but I'm, I'm so glad to have you back on the program. We must do this again. Lots of calls this time around. You're a popular guy. Let me give your website and, of course, plug the YouTube channel that you can link to from the website. Lots going on in the in the world of Jeremy Cato, and you can find it all at Cato, C-A-T-O, by the way, CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy Cato, thanks for this. Great to have you back on the show. We must do this again sometime. Okay, we will, Sterling. Old boy. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Bye. And we're back after this. And once again, our thanks to automotive journalist Jeremy Cato for another informative visit. And thanks for those calls, too. Good stuff. Next week, John Carlson's back with a fresh look at Metro Vancouver real estate. Andrew Ferreira is back from his Japanese vacation, so we can do Ask Andrew again this hour. And this time, Andrew, it's about de-smoking BC wines after a summer of fires. Yeah, so the Vancouver International Wine Festival is happening right now, and we just had the folks from Cedar Creek come by in the last hour. Absolutely. So I figured this is kind of talk. Topical to bring up. Uh, the Wine Fest runs until tomorrow, by the way. So mm-hmm. if you want to get on down to the convention center, now's the time to do it. Uh, but UBC Okanagan, a bunch of researchers have been working on a way to deal with the fact that all of our wildfires are making wine smoky. So what happens is that the the sugar, the the, the compounds in the grapes will kind of take in the smoke particles and and turn them into sugar. And what happens is during the fermentation process, those sugars are released. And it turns the wine smoky, and that's obviously not what they want from their wine. Right. So uh, one of the researchers, his name is Wesley Zandberg. He's a U- uh, UBC Okanagan assistant chemistry professor. They found that by spraying the grapes with this phospholipid compound, and phospholipids are what makes up your cell walls inside of you. By spraying the grapes with this stuff, they've found that the wine flavor is a lot more preserved. It doesn't allow as much, nearly as much smoke to get into the grapes. And so this is something that they're hoping that they... You know, they're going to look at going into years forward because, you know, the wildfire situations, you know, as global warming continues, it's not necessarily going to get any much better. And mm-hmm. the Okanagan is wine country and also wildfire country. So 
Interesting stuff and great work at UBC Okanagan. Thank you, Andrew. March begins tomorrow. Daylight savings time begins next weekend. Spring is in the air, at least in our corner of Canada. And here's the new spring forecast from the Weather Network, which looks at March, April, and May. Quote, spring will tease us at times with periods of warm weather, but the warmth will lack consistency across most of Canada, says the forecaster. Right. Tell that to the folks in Ontario this weekend. Talk about a snowstorm. Uh, Which is perhaps why the forecast also includes includes, quote, this spring will bring a heightened risk for several weeks of colder than normal weather, even for regions that see average temperatures for the season overall. In addition, large parts of the country will have a wet spring. And as for those of us huddled in the rainforest here on the coast, a slower start to spring than many recent years, but that means excellent conditions expected on local mountains for skiers and boarders. Spring is also expected to finish strong across the region, warmer than average temperatures. The Weather Network notes, notes rather, near normal rain and alpine snow expected. So there you go. Pretty much same old, same old. We'll take it, especially if it keeps coming on on beautiful days like this. That is our show for this Saturday. I'm Sterling Fox. Catch you again next Saturday at 2 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.